0: Critics love to suggest that Christianity is the white man's religion. Nothing could be further from the truth. Today, we discuss why in Acts chapter 8, plus I answer viewer and listener questions. It's your favorite night of the week. Welcome to the Deep End with Tim Hatch. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Tuesday, 7 p.m. on YouTube or Facebook or wherever you listen or watch. So glad that you're here. My name is Tim Hatch. I do this weekly podcast to bring the Bible to you where you are. Please like and subscribe us on youtube.com slash the deep TV. And if you could go to the podcast app and leave us a review and hopefully a five-star review, that would be very helpful and very appreciated. Welcome to our FM 99.3 radio audience in Rhode Island. Welcome to Spotify. Welcome to WEZE in Boston, Massachusetts on your drive time, uh, drive home time hour, 4.45 p.m. every weekday. So glad that you've joined us. So we're going to get right into your questions today because one of your questions actually leads us into Acts chapter 8. And I got a lot of content for you from there. And uh, we're going to talk about how the Spirit leads us. But we've got some questions from you. As always, send them in anonymously by text at 508-316-9333 or ask at deepend.tv. Or you could ask them in the comments below on Facebook or YouTube.com. So let's go to our questions, shall we? I have in the studio Mike from Minnesota Michael from Waters Church staff. I won't call him Minnesota Michael, but (laughs) Michael, you're going to ask the question, so shoot me the first question.
1: All right. Uh, someone at a Pentecostal church once told me that yoga and some of its poses are evil. Is there any truth to that? How does one even know? Can one enjoy the physical aspect of yoga or even Christian yoga without worshiping whatever uh, yogis, yog- yogis worship? Or should, I, uh, should we just stay away?
0: Well, first of all, yogis, isn't that a bear?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know about that yogi bear. <laughs>
1: so, all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm done I'm done okay. for today <laughs> Yogi the bear.
0: I love that show. Um, okay, so I don't know why Pentecostal church is mentioned here. I've heard a lot of people from all kinds of uh, denominations talk about the evils of yoga. I don't personally have a problem with the yoga stretching poses. I don't think that poses of any sort are evil, except the one where you raise one of your fingers to drivers next to you on the ra- on the drive home. Okay, that pose is evil. Don't practice that one. But when it comes to yoga, this is an honest question and I appreciate the question, but sometimes we get so worried as Christians, and I said this on Sunday at our church, we get so worried about things that we shouldn't worry about, um, while at the same time not worrying about the things that we should worry about, like the Illuminati. I saw a lot of, I didn't see it, somebody reported to me, because I'm not on Facebook personally, but somebody reported to me that on Facebook there's a lot of flack by Christians about the Super Bowl halftime show because of the apparent Illuminati symbolism in yeah. the show. And I was like, really? You're worrying about that? Like, they're grabbing their privates in front of kids, and you worry about of, that? Of all the things. <laughs> you know, they're, they're half naked dancing up there. Oh, and by the way, somebody said in the comments last week about how they would have appreciated if there was a lot, of, lot more talk about the fact that Adam Lambert did it last year. But again, that just... Proves my point is that, you know, for women, that's not really the issue. For men, it is the issue, this allurement of the sexually visible female. Um, and it's, like, just so forgettable when Adam Lambert does it. He's a man. I mean, who cares? It's it's not an issue. Now, do I think he should do it? No. I think that we should try to make um, something like the Super Bowl halftime show as family-friendly as possible. Anyway, back to the yoga question. I, I as a Christian pastor i have practiced many yoga stretches they're very helpful they're they're great in fact i had a serious um problem with plantar festitis is that how you call it plantar festitis something like that you're getting out of my aroma purview here (laughs) yeah well i used to do a lot of running and so it would really wreck my ankle and i did something with yoga stretching recommended by someone who is now on staff here Chris, who's on the podcast on a regular basis, that stretch literally fixed the problem for me. So, you know, stretches, poses, (laughs) not evil. Let's worry about what is evil greed, uh, lust, pride, (laughs) the things that the scriptures actually talk about that are evil should be on our radar. Let's not find, you know, physical things to be mad about. Now, when yoga yoga crosses the line into spiritual transcendental meditation, yes, Christian, you want to avoid that. But again, you have a choice in the pose. The pose does not force you to meditate or worship some other God. You have a choice in the pose to focus on the Lord Jesus or just breathe or just, you know, stretch. I mean, when I'm stretching, it's so painful I don't have the capacity to think about anything else other than, oh, right? So it's, to me, it's never been a spiritual thing. It's always been a physical thing. I think do the physical stretching. It's good for you. If you don't like it, don't do it. But don't let people put that burden of, on you. Don't put, don't let people put that guilt on you if you're a Christian and you're just you know stretching. Next question. Okay. Uh, Where is the line between
1: being bold for Christ and being a bully. Uh, When I read that John MacArthur said about Beth Moore, I thought he sounded cruel like a bully. I understand that MacArthur is called to boldly expose those who go against the gospel, and he does this very well, but aren't we also called to be gentle and loving? Where is the line?
0: Yes. uh, For those of you viewers and listeners who don't know, and you might be listening to this far after we actually recorded this podcast— About three months ago, he was at a conference with a lot of his ilk in the Christian, you know, movement that he's a part of, the denomination that he's a part of. So somebody asked him about Beth Moore, the very popular Christian, uh, uh, I guess you would call her a preacher or um, touring speaker. And she does a lot of books. She writes a lot of books and she does. And she even says herself that she is called to minister to women. if, If men get something out of it, then so be it. But anyway, at his conference in in, and I only stress this to make a point. He was amongst his friends. He was amongst his ilk, his groups, his tribe, and he said, in response to Beth Moore, the question was, "What would you say to her?" He said, "Go home," and uh, and he's basically making the point that you know women preacher not pr- women preachers are not biblical they are not given authority in the church to preach and teach and present the authoritative doctrine of the church to the church. That role is specifically uh, given to men uh, in the scriptures, and I agree with that. I just think that, yeah, he was in his tribe, and he was, you know, bringing out a little of the bravado, and it's a reminder that even the the best of preachers and teachers still have the flesh, and I don't want to say that what he did was like awful. I think that it was probably an un, uncalled-for way to approach the topic. He could have done it much more gently and pastoral. But just like the questioner said, he does believe he is called to boldly expose those who against the, go against the gospel. This was not against the gospel. This is just a matter of church polity, which I do believe you can't escape the very clear, and I want to make sure that you hear that, listeners and watchers, the very clear Scriptures in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, uh, that um, segregate the teaching of God's Word in the authority of the church to men. The leadership and positions of authority in the church is relegated and segregated to men. You might not like that. You might get mad at me. I'm just teaching you what Scripture says. Jesus called 12 apostles, all men, uh, all the priests in Israel, men, uh, all the missionaries in Acts, men. It is <clears throat> a common theme in the scriptures, not saying that women are less valuable. They also have a calling to teach the younger women uh, and to uh, be a part of the church in service ministries and love ministries and health ministries, and they are an invaluable asset to the work of a church in a local context. Now, some of you listeners will disagree with what I've said, and that's okay. I I go with what I see clearly in the Scripture and the people who like to use, and this is very important, the people who like to use the unclear teaching of Scripture about women in ministry, women preaching and teaching or pastoring, the unclear passages, you know, they like to kind of like twist them, like read into them, to subvert the clear passages. I don't have a burden of proof to prove my point. I'm taking the Scripture, the clear teaching, you're taking the unclear teaching. The burden is on you to show me how the unclear ever in any other area of biblical teaching uh, supersedes the clear. That goes with human sexuality. That goes with divorce and remarriage. That goes with um, salvation by faith alone in Christ Jesus. I mean, we have got to read the Bible for what it says, particularly the New Testament and particularly pastoral epistles First Peter, I mean first Timothy, second Timothy Titus. So yeah, he was a bit of a not a bully, I wouldn't say bully, just bravado. And he let, you know, maybe a little bit of his tribalism get to him in that moment. We all do it. Let's not hold it against him. I believe he is a partner in preaching Christ, and we need more of them, not less of them. So that's my answer to that. Next question.
1: Okay. Um when I, uh, when I read about speaking in tongues and acts, I thought it was clearly described speaking in foreign languages uh, so that those from other countries could understand what was being said. Uh, how, then, is this gift of the Spirit get interpreted to mean speaking in nonsensical words? What's your position on this?
0: Okay, well, the Scripture never says that tongues is nonsensical, ever. In fact, it is either a known foreign language or it is a language of angels, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels. So let us not fool ourselves to think that English is the language of heaven, <laughs> or Hebrew is, or Aramaic, or Greek. We don't know what the language of heaven is. We know that we will all understand it once we get there. However, in the book of Acts, there's only one reference to people from other areas, understanding the speaking of tongues, and that is in the very first instance in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, verse eight, it says, "And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, the, uh, them declaring the glories of God?" Basically, making the point that these uneducated um, Galileans, you know, kind of like backwoods Jews, were speaking all these foreign language languages as they were supernaturally. Endowed by God through the gift of tongues to speak to those foreigners, but remember that those foreigners were also Jews themselves from the diaspora, from the scattered regions of the Mediterranean world at the time. They most likely spoke two or three languages each, so they didn't have to hear those languages in their foreign in their language those praises in their language. But God supernaturally endowed the disciples to speak in those foreign languages for the sake of testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then from Acts chapter 2 onward, you don't ever see that instance of Acts again. You do see tongues, particularly twice in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, mentioned specifically. Neither of those instances does it talk about anybody understanding what was being said. Then you go to 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, and then he uh, uh, he unpacks the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14. One of those gifts is tongues. Another gift is the interpretation of tongues. So then he talks about it in verse in chapter 14 that the interpretation must follow tongues in the public setting. He never suggests uh, that these tongues in the church setting so that other people can understand what was being said. In fact, he actually says the opposite. He says that when you speak in tongues, you speak in a way that your mind is not fruitful. In other words, you can't understand it. But your spirit speaks, utters mysteries to God. He says this, and by the way, in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I want you all to speak in tongues. I want to put it up on the screen because it's so important. He says, I want you all to speak in tongues. Like a lot of people, the tongue deniers, missed that verse somehow. Because he's saying to the Corinthians, I think it's great, but it is secondary to prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is speaking in the known language um, about the mysteries of God, about the about the way God sees the world and a, per- and a certain person's life or situation. He says that one will be understood, so you should aim for the gift of prophecy and put on a second tier level the gift of tongues, but please don't think, questioner, that Tongues is only for foreigners to understand uh, the gospel. That's just not true. That's not the common and normative experience in the book of Acts. And when it's not normative, we do not make it a doctrine. There's a rule about doctrines. Doctrines have to have at least two or preferably three attestations in Scripture to become doctrines. I will give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that the Corinthians, some of them, were being baptized for their dead relatives. So they were going through the of baptism to hope for their dead relatives to get to heaven. There's only one mention of it in the entire Bible. That's the only one, 1 Corinthians 15. We do not make a doctrine out of that. Why? One mention. If there had been two or three mentions, then we take it seriously. But the rule of scriptural interpretation for the sake of doctrine is it has to be mentioned and backed up by at least two or three voices in the biblical text. Back to women in preaching ministries, we have Peter and Paul saying the same thing. Okay, so that is important, and we have to read the book of Acts in totality with 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and and put them all together, and not just let one moment, one instance of Scripture become doctrinal. That is a very important point. Thank you for the question. I appreciate that. Next question. All right, this is the last
1: one. Um, We are taught to be led by the Spirit um, to stop trying in our own might to let God work through us and to have his way with us. Uh, But how do I know if I'm making decisions based on my own will versus letting God have his will in my life? What does that look like? Uh, Do I just pray, make decisions, and take action hoping that I got things right? Or do I know if my steps in life are God's will uh, and... er, How do I know if my steps in life are God's will and not my own?
0: Okay, I I love that these questions are anonymous. And here's why. Because I'm going to say something that might, if I knew you and you knew who I was, you might feel offended by this. But I want to say it because it's a one-word answer to your question. Here's the word. Are you ready? Chillax. (laughs) I I just feel like I need to say that to you. To me, this question comes across as you're almost a little bit too scared to do anything. Because, or not to, I don't want to put that on you, but you're so a little bit inhibited by this idea of following the Spirit's lead that, I don't know, unless the Spirit tells you to make you breakfast, unless you, the Spirit tells you to make breakfast, are you going to skip it that day? I mean, you, be careful of this. Uh, sometimes we get so caught up in these uh, ideas of, of Christianity, uh, spiritual Christianity, that we actually let it become counterproductive to our lives like, for instance, I'll just put it like this. The life of faith has a few extraordinary moments and a boatload of ordinary moments. So, even in the Bible, when we think about, it was written over 15, it was put together. The Bible was written down over a 1,500 period of human history, 1,500 year period of human history by 40 different authors uh, on three different continents, and in in from all walks of life. And out of that 1,500 years of human history, we only get a few resurrections. Of course, Christ Jesus being the most important, but, you know, there's not many. So some people, like, get... They say, well, there's no proof for Christianity because people still don't get raised from the dead. Well, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead. And first off, we've had reports of it happening in church history and in, especially in missionary fields that were hardened to the gospel. But secondly, it doesn't happen that often. Thirdly, there's a resurrection to come at the last day when all will be raised. But finally, to just suggest, look, the life of faith is filled with a few extraordinary moments, and a boatload of ordinary ones. So I, I want you to not get so worked up in trying to figure out if everything that you do is in God's will and led by the Spirit. And here's what I would suggest to you. Do what is right. Just do what is right. Are you married? Be faithful to your spouse. Do you have a job? Go to work and work hard. Do you have neighbors? Love them in Jesus' name in practical, invisible ways. Do you sin? Confess your sins and repent and turn back to God. That's the normative Christian experience. Don't get too worked up. And I'm thankful for this question because it leads right into the content that we're going to head into in the book of Acts, being led by the Spirit. So thanks for the question. Chillax. God loves you. Go about your life and trust that you're his daughter or son. I don't know, male or female, whatever you are. Um, and that you are loved by him, and he loves you, and his grace is always enough. Okay. Ask anything of the deep end. Love your questions. No question is considered foolish. Please ask at the deep end. Ask at deepend.tv or 508-316-9333 or in the comment section below if you don't mind being uh, known for asking that question. Thank you for the questions. Keep them coming. And let's head into the book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the Cash app with cash tag thedeepend.tv. Acts chapter 8. Are we ever going to get out of this chapter? <laughs> We've been here for three episodes, but this is the beauty of the scriptures. You can really slow down and investigate the scriptures. We're in Acts chapter 8 again. The title of this talk is Following the Spirit's Lead. The subtitle is It May Not Be What You Think. When it comes to, and thank you again, back to that questioner, Following the Spirit's Lead, it may not, and it may not be glamorous. It may not be tremendous. It may not be unreal. Like, it might just be something that actually asks you to do a counterintuitive action, something that doesn't come naturally. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts in chapter 8 with our friend, the table waiter from Acts chapter 6, the deacon, Philip, who will become the evangelist. He's already evangelized the Samaritans, the hated, you know, Samaritans, the the outsiders to the Jewish people. And he has performed miracles, and he has worked signs and wonders. We have talked about that, that the signs and wonders are not just for the apostles. It was also for people like Philip. And then we are going to see here in Acts chapter 8 that this this mighty man of God who started out waiting on tables— is led by the Holy Spirit through this chapter. And this chapter is so important. The reason why we're spending three weeks on it is because it's important. Because the gospel door is being widely opened to different groups of people. First the Samaritans, and now we're going to see the Africans. Okay, Because, as I said in the cold open, one of the great criticisms of Christianity in the postmodern West is that Christianity is the white man's religion. Okay, anybody who says that does not know their history, has not read the Bible, and is pretty much ignorant, honestly. <laughs> Nothing can be further than the Jews. We are eight chapters into Acts, and we are going to see the gospel being thrust into Africa, being thrust into a completely different colored skin type of people from the Jews, who, by the way, in ancient times were not white. You say, well, Jews are white today. That's because they were in Europe for 500 years. (laughs) And the sun doesn't shine as much. And the fact of the matter is that ancient Jews, there's a good amount of evidence that ancient Jews were probably brown. Jesus was probably brown somewhere, and isn't that wonderful, somewhere between white and black. As if to say, I'm the bridge. I will confess that Sunday morning is oftentimes the most segregated time of the week. That's bad. We shouldn't be segregated in our worship experiences. However... The people who are worshiping Jesus in predominantly black churches are worshiping the same Jesus along the same doctrinal lines as the people worshiping Jesus in predominantly white churches. The, the fact that we separate on these silly things like skin color does not uh, prove that the Christian movement is a white man's religion. It is an every man's religion, it is open to all, and that's the best part. Now, back to the point the Spirit's leading. My question for you is, do you want to be led by the Spirit of God? Do you want to be led by the Spirit of God? Now, of course, you'll say, yes, if you're a Christian, you'll, you'll say this. Well, I've got some verses. Two of them are good, but one of them, pay attention. Number one, like Romans eight fourteen: for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I love that verse. That's a beautiful verse. Next verse, Galatians five eighteen: But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And I love this verse because Paul is saying, that a spirit-led person does not actually even need the law. Why? Because the spirit is going to change their heart to follow God's will regardless of anyone saying do this don't do that. Like the spirit supersedes the law in that the spirit is God in you working in you to will and to do according to God's good pleasure Philippians 2:13 to 14 or 12 to 13. And so when we have the spirit leading us, we don't need the law to govern us but here's another verse this one you want to be led by the spirit this one might not be comfy for you exemplified by the lord jesus christ matthew chapter 4 verse 1 then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil ouch now that one i don't want (laughs) anybody with me out there Please, Holy Spirit, don't lead me to the wilderness. And please, Holy Spirit, don't lead me to where the devil is going to just, you know, roughshod, tempt me for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't want that. But Jesus experienced that. Now, sometimes, and I only bring these three verses up because sometimes we romanticize being led by the Spirit. That the the Spirit-led life always leads us to bigger, better, higher, and greater. Uh, richer and more. That's not always the case. And that's not the case here in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to see it in Acts chapter, uh, exemplified in Philip's life. Let me follow up <clears throat> that question, do you want to be led by the Spirit of God, with another question. Here's the question that I want to follow it up with. Do you want to be led by the Spirit of God so that someone else is introduced to Jesus? Because I think that that is what the Spirit wants to lead you to do. Okay? Making breakfast, uh, going to work, um, having children. Spirit can help you. I'm not sure He's going to lead you to do those, those things. I believe that the Spirit is actively at work to send the church out, to ignite the church so that the church has a heart for people far from God and the message of the gospel and wants to bring those far from God into the message of the gospel, so that they are saved, and they are born again, and they are part of the family of God. That is the purpose of being led by the Spirit, and we see that over and over again in the book of Acts. Remember, the book of Acts starts by saying, in my former book, I began to teach about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now in this second volume, Acts chapter, Acts, uh, Luke, and then Acts is the continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach. He continues it through who? The church, you and me. And these stories that we read in Acts are a continuation of Jesus at work through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers. So let's get into it. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. I just want you to note that line. This is a desert place. Okay, this is Philip, the table waiter, turned evangelist because he goes to the Samaritans, right? And and remember that when he gets there, he starts performing miracles. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 7, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There was much joy in that city. I just want you to think about, this was Philip's experience. Philip goes to this foreign land and a huge, mighty revival breaks out. Demons are being cast out. Paralyzed people are walking. Lame are being healed. Now, could you imagine being part of the movement, part of the start? The, the, the initiator through the Holy Spirit's power of such a movement. You would be like, whoa, this is amazing. And I want you to notice that in the midst of that geographical revival where hordes of people are coming to Christ at the preaching and ministry of Philip, God says to him, leave. You ever think about that? This is so amazing that God would say, leave, and by the way, go to the desert. <clears throat> to me, I'm like, no thanks, God. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've got all these people getting healed. I'm laying hands. They're getting healed. Uh, they're coming to my church. Thousands upon thousands, they're listening to me preach. I'm actually turned, I've turned into a pretty darn good preacher, and look at all the things that God is doing. And God says, I know, I see it, and I want you to move. And so the point that I just want to make is that sometimes sometimes God doesn't lead us in the way we think makes sense. Sometimes God doesn't lead us to bigger and better. Sometimes actually he leads us to smaller and maybe less significant things, at least at the time. But here's our limited perspective causing problems for us because maybe the lesser place that we need to go as we follow God is actually a special place for what God wants to do after we are done. We have limited perspective. In other words, we look at our lives and we can think, man, if I don't reach a 1,000 people for Christ, if our church doesn't grow to over 2,000 people, then we've done nothing. Well, how do you know that that one person, that, maybe the first person that you led to Christ in that church when you were 20 people, maybe that person becomes the greatest evangelist the world's ever known? I think of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers in England. In the 1800s, he had a church of 10,000 people. He, he's called the greatest preacher of the, 18, of the 19th century. You know how he was led to Christ? He was led to Christ because he, being a drunkard and a young rebellious teenager, suddenly realized that his life was going nowhere and he needed God in his life. And he prayed, and then he set out to go to church one Sunday, and it snowed. And it snowed so bad, all the churches of England closed down, all the churches of London closed down. The only church that was open was a small Methodist church of about 30 people. He stumbled in, and he sat down, and the guy that, pre- that passed through the church didn't show up that day because of the weather, and they didn't have a preacher. And so they said, who wants to preach? And this lowly parishioner, this lowly church attender, I shouldn't say lowly because nobody's lowly in the eyes of God, but this guy that really nobody knew gets up and kind of fumbles through a a small sermonette, and then he points his finger at at Charles Spurgeon sitting there and says, you young man, you need Christ. Turn to him and live. And in that very moment, through that uneducated, unsophisticated, inexperienced preacher, Charles Spurgeon is converted to Christ, and he becomes the greatest preacher in the world for. The 19th century. One to Christ in a lowly place. Friends, when Christ or God or the Holy Spirit leads you to lowly places, do not despise them, because you never know what the seeds that you are planting are going to become. And that is wonderfully illustrated here in Acts chapter 8. He, God says to him, go to a desert place. Go to a desert. Leave the great revival that is happening in Samaria and go to to the desert place. Verse 27, I love this because Philip just rises and goes, and the Greek is very clear, it is like immediate. It's the same words, the same, I'm sorry, the same tense and form of the words that Abraham had when he followed God at his voice in Genesis 12. But it says he rose and went, and then, this is important, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So he goes from a significant revival down into the desert, meets one person, but the one person that he meets, kind of important, like really important. So a couple of facts about him. Number one, he was Ethiopian, which means he was black, most likely. In fact, uh, church historians to this day call him uh, Simon Black, or Simon the Black. And so he was black. So again, Christianity, not a white man's religion. Never was a white man's religion. Always been in every man's religion. But he's also from far away. He's from Ethiopia. And he's about 700, 800 miles away from Israel. Secondly, he's a eunuch. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a second, but I I want you to understand what a eunuch was. A eunuch was very common in the ancient world. The word for eunuch here means, or comes from the word for, to keep the bed. Uh, Basically, High royal officials typically surrounded themselves with eunuchs. Do you know why? Because eunuchs couldn't reproduce. They couldn't. Um, they couldn't breed <laughs> with the high royal official, and therein the high royal official's lineage, ancestry, was protected. So the queen, obviously, to to keep her lineage pure. Okay, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying what what the facts were would have surrounded herself with eunuchs in important roles so that she would protect herself from intermingling with foreigners and then possibly uh, subverting her own lineage's future and dynasty. Okay? So he was a servant of, of Candace. Now, Candace also is not necessarily her name. It is more likely a title, the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And there's like, you know, 30 of them in a long line of succession. But anyway, he was in charge of all the treasure. I want to show you on the map here, on the world map, the distance that this man had traveled. This is obviously Ethiopia today. It is perhaps in this region where he was from in Acts chapter 8. We don't know. It could have been more over here. It could have been over on the Horn of Africa. We're not quite sure. But today, this is where Ethiopia is. So let's let's just assume that that's where he's from. He would have traveled by camel, uh, about 25 miles per day, about a four-month journey to get to Israel, and he came to worship. and And this is an important thing, because this is a, his action of going to Jerusalem is actually fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. Psalm 68, verse 31 says, "Nobles shall come from Egypt, Cush or Ethiopia." Another word for Kush in the Old Testament is uh, for Ethiopia in the Old Testament is Cush. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. So, this man is a living fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But there's more to the story. Because 800 years before this, there was a notable queen from this area that we refer to as the Queen of Sheba. Now, that name should sound familiar to you. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Queen of Sheba who comes and visits who? King Solomon at the height of his power, at the height of his wisdom, at the height of his success. She is floored by his wisdom. The Bible actually says that when she saw all that he'd done and all that he had and all that he knew, that there was no breath left in her. She's so overwhelmed by Solomon. She praises him. She praises the God of Israel. She is floored by the whole experiences, and then she gives him all kinds of gifts, and then he gives her all kinds of gifts. And guess what? Um... Evidently, King Solomon and Queen of Sheba did more than just exchange gifts. <laughs> Historians, and, and this is at least surmised, I don't know if we have hard and fast facts about this, but this is what I found, and, uh, or at least my research assistant found, that King Solomon and Queen of Sheba had, had an affair, slept together, and they produced a king. And this ancient king went back to Jerusalem to find his father. This is back in the 800s B.C., 900s B.C. And he learned of Judaism, and he learned of the prosperity of his father. And and then he brought many of the the ideals of Judaism back to Ethiopia with him because he wanted to honor his father. And because of this, there was established a strong uh, Jewish community in Ethiopia in 900 B.C. Now, that knowledge would have passed down over the generations, leading to an Ethiopian eunuch in 0 BC, or at least maybe 35 BC, by the time Acts chapter 8 shows up, to travel 800 miles back to the Holy Land to worship God. And he's a pretty important guy, which kind of backs up the story, the narrative that this actually happened. We know that Solomon had a problem with adultery, we know he had an affinity for the ladies. Okay, so it's entirely possible that this is all true. But anyway, what is evil? The adultery God uses for good. And there's a group of people in Ethiopia who long to know the God of Israel. And here's one of them. So let's continue in the story. Um, it says that he came to Jerusalem, verse 27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. That's important and was returning, that's also important, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, the Spirit led Philip to go over and join this chariot. Okay. The Ethiopian eunuch had come to worship, but you get the idea, based on how the word is, the the phrase is here in verse 28, that he was disappointed. Why would he have been disappointed? Not because he was an Ethiopian, Not because he was black, but because he was a eunuch. Why is that important? Because according to the law, according to the Old Testament law, this man would have been excluded from temple worship on the basis of his physical condition. So I want to show you a passage of Scripture that proves what I'm saying. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off just, um, and, and I'm not trying to be gross or cute here. Cut off is an important phrase there. No one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That is in the law. To go into the temple, you had to be perfect physically and, and, and um, well, physically. And so this man, put yourself in his shoes had traveled four months over 800 miles. That's 25 miles a day. Like we go 25 miles in 20 minutes today. He took a day to go 25 miles and he traveled for four months to get to Israel only to meet someone at the door who said to him, you can't come in. Eunuchs aren't allowed. And he, I could just imagine being, what do you mean? And they're like, Deuteronomy 23, You're excluded from worship. So he is excluded from the Judeo system of worship. And yet God, in his wonderful grace and providence, sends Philip to him. Do you see now why sometimes when God takes you from greater to lesser, it might be because the lesser and the lower places need to hear about the wonderful grace and mercy and kindness of God? In other words, Christian, don't only be attracted to the big and the better and the higher and the more important and the more impressive. Sometimes God's not really into that. Sometimes God's into the lowly. In fact, I know he's into the lowly a lot because that's how Christ came to us. Lowly in a manger to a poor Jewish family. Not in the important places, in the unimportant places. That's how the Christian movement works, which is great news for anybody listening right now on the radio or on YouTube who feels like your life is insignificant, you're lowly. Well, God is with you, and God can use you, and God can meet you right there. This man, excluded from Israel because of his condition, Philip is hand-delivered to him with the gospel by the Holy Spirit. So let's move on. Verse 30 says this, so Philip ran to him. And I love Philip's willingness. Like, how many of you would run to someone far from God? Like, that's important for us to see. He ran. And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. How can I, unless someone guides guides me. Okay, that phrase is so important, because I want you to understand that the eunuch believed in God. He wanted to worship God. He even had a copy of the Bible in his hand. He had the scroll of Isaiah, not, not, not the book, but the scroll. In the ancient world, there was scrolls that were each, each book was a scroll. By the way, the fact that he had a scroll kind of backs up the fact that he was wealthy because scrolls were rare in the ancient world, and to have any copies of ancient texts meant you were wealthy. And so this, he's wealthy. He's in charge of the treasury of the Ethiopians. He's got means. And, and yet, in spite of all that he had going for him, he still needed someone to explain the biblical text to him. You know what this is saying? It's saying this. The Bible alone, Christian, is not enough for your spiritual growth. And I'm talking to the rogue Christians out there who believe that they can do it on their own. Church in my house with my family. Church in my car with my podcasts and my Hillsong worship. No, no, no. The Bible alone and disconnection from Christian community and church is not enough. I want you to make sure you hear that. It's not enough. You need someone, just like this Ethiopian eunuch, you need someone to guide you. That is why the Scripture says in Ephesians 4 that God gives us pastors and teachers so that the body of Christ might be built up and reach maturity. A lot of you watch The Deep End on YouTube, and a lot of you watch on Facebook, and you think, this is church. This is not church. What this is, is a supplemental vitamin for your spiritual growth. It's a vitamin B shot on Tuesday night for your faith to get stronger and more knowledgeable in the Word of God. Get yourself to a church. Get under spiritual authority elders and pastors who will care for you and keep watch over you as they are instructed to in the Scriptures. Serve the body of Christ. Use your talents. Use your gifts. And grow. Grow. Yes, you can serve Christ anywhere. I, I understand you can serve Christ anywhere, but you should be serving the body of Christ. Where do I get that? That's from Galatians chapter six. Do good unto all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So first things first, before you do good to anybody else, do good to other Christians. Well, if you don't have community with other Christians, you'll never be able to have an opportunity to do good to them. Be involved in a local assembly under local leadership and grow in faith as someone called by God and given to the church by Jesus Christ, feeds you the Word of God and explains to you what it means. Now, the other important thing here is that this eunuch who was separated from the life of faith is actually brought in through the teaching of the Word. That's what teaching does. It it, it helps those who feel disconnected to connect to God. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. So he's reading from Isaiah, right? Now, watch this next verse. Verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading, and this is so wonderful, because this is like the, this is just the choreography of God. The Scripture he was reading was this, quote, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silenced, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth." This is the verse that the Ethiopian eunuch, who has just been rejected by the Jewish worship system because of the condition of his physical body, was reading at the very moment the Holy Spirit leads Philip to go and join his chariot. I mean, it's like perfect choreography. Why? Well, look, this passage is about Christ's rejection. Secondly, it's also about something else we know about Christ. It's about the fact that he never had Physical children. I'll read the passage from Isaiah word for word just so you hear it a little bit clearer. And I don't have it on the screen. So here's what it says. Isaiah 53, 7, to 8. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is born for its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Man, you can just hear the eunuch saying, whoa, who's this? And for as for his generation, the scripture goes on, who considered that he was cut off. Cut off. Remember I told you to remember that from Deuteronomy 23. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You have to just see this eunuch reading this saying, who is this? I want to know what, because I relate to this. Now, I am not saying Jesus was a eunuch. No. No. But I am saying that he was cut off in the sense that he never had a wife and he never had physical children, descendants. Okay, so Martin Scorsese says he's wrong. <laughs> For all those who remember that movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. Anyway, this eunuch is reading the exact passage that helps him relate to Jesus. This is so beautiful, it's so wonderful verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you? And again, the the phraseology, the the, the phrasing here in Greek is almost as if he's like, please tell me. Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? You know what is so beautiful about this moment? Christ meets us where we are. And this is a great moment to talk about sharing your faith with someone else, Christians. When when you share your faith, when you, and I, I, I don't want to put this phrase out there. When you feel led by the Spirit of God to go talk to that neighbor, to go talk to that coworker, to go talk to that friend or family member, and you know, you may have a thousand conversations with them beforehand, and then suddenly it's like the Lord says, hey, tell them about me. Talk to, talk about me to them. And, and you don't know what to do, and you're, and you're worried, and you're freaking out, and you're thinking, I don't have what it takes, and I don't know what I'm talking about. What if they ask me a question that I shouldn't ask, that that I don't have an answer for, and you feel overwhelmed by the moment. I want you just to remember this moment, because here's what was happening in that eunuch. God was already at work in his life when Philip showed up. And so following that small voice of the Holy Spirit who says, hey, talk about me to them real quick, it's often choreographed by God already doing something in their heart and in their life leading you to that moment. And I I share this so that you will be more bold and more at ease in that moment to open your mouth and say something. Because yes, this is always a stressful moment for a lot of Christians, and a lot of Christians feel overwhelmed by the moment. And again, you might not feel worthy of the moment. You can do it. You can do it, and you should do it. And again, not all the time. Like, you know, when you have a job, you shouldn't be witnessing (laughs) eight hours a day. No, you should be doing your job. But, you know, during lunch or during a break or maybe after lunch or you, you, you go to their, par- their house for you know, dinner or whatever. Or I don't know. But someone at some point, God speaks to you and they say and, he, and you just feel him say, you need to say something, say it. Because God is at work already in their life. Now, what does Philip do? Philip does what he should do, what we, we, sh- what we all should do when it comes to sharing our faith. Verse 34. What, what, what does this, what's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. In other words, he started where he was. He told him the good news about Jesus because Christian witnessing is telling people two things. Good news, Jesus. Good news, Jesus. That's it. Christian witnessing is not arguing. Christian witnessing is not debating. Christian witnessing is not defending your political position. Christian witnessing is telling people the good news about Jesus. So what is the good news about Jesus? The good news is this, that this eunuch, guess what? What you feel Jesus felt, rejected by the religious system, guess what? Jesus went through that. Whenever you're talking to somebody who's far from God or not in the faith yet, please start where they are. Start where they are. Don't start where you are. That's not serving them. That's serving you. Don't tell them about how much you know. Find out about what's going on in their life. Talk to them about their life ask them questions about their life listen for cues that they might say such as i'm overwhelmed by i'm not sure how we're going to get through or i'm in a new place and i'm not you know i'm not confident well okay yeah, i got i got good news for you and this is what you should do as a as a follower of christ is actually care for the person that the lord has called you to share the faith with care for them not, not not, just try to impress them with Bible knowledge or, or, or argue with them. No, that's not the point. The Bible is not about people. The Bible is about Jesus. And when we talk about the Scriptures, we should lead it to, to Jesus. He is the hope of every person's life. He, personal, is the hope of every person's life. Um, I think of that famous phrase by C.S. Lewis who said, I came to Christianity looking for a program and I found a person. And that is the truth. We lead people to the good news that is about Jesus. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? So just note here that he's in the middle of the desert. He's got so much, he's got, he's heard one sermon from Philip. It's a very personal sermon. It's a one-on-one sermon. And he's heard about Jesus. And he believes. And the very next thing he wants to do is get baptized. I want to talk to the you, you, you Christians who go to church for years before you get baptized. What is going on? Or the people who are praying about getting baptized. Why would you pray about something God tells you to do? Why, why, why do we do that? Why do we use prayer as a cop-out to disobey God? If you believe in Christ, get baptized. No waiting, no hesitating. No sidelining for like 30 years, do it. Because that's obedience to Christ. See, some people do this, and I hear this excuse all the time. I hear this excuse all the time from the non-baptized Christians out there. Well, what if I don't live up to Christianity? What if I what if it doesn't work? What if I what if I fail? You're gonna fail. Because Christianity is not being super moral. Do you know what being a Christian is? Being a Christian is being a continued Christian confessor of your faults and failures before God for His forgiveness and grace in your life. The only way you get to be a Christian is to admit you're not worthy of being a Christian. (laughs) Can you do that? (laughs) Can you do that? Like, is that that in your wheelhouse to be able to confess that you're not good enough? Because if you can do that, you can be a Christian. We get so confused because people love to point out how other Christians aren't Christians because they're not living the Christian life. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is repentance. I, I, I'm on Twitter, and I always follow these political people who argue with each other, and, and it bugs me because you know what they're always doing? You know what they always pull out? They always pull out the, so-and-so, this political figure, claims to be a Christian, but he did this. Yeah, and Christianity is not defined by what you do. Christianity is defined by what Jesus did for you. A Christian is oftentimes a horrible person. Because they're just, maybe they're brand new to Christ. Maybe they just came in and they aren't yet changed and they aren't, you know, sanctified and holified like you are. So relax. What if I don't live up to the Christian life? The only way you live up to the Christian life is by getting down on your knees and admitting that you're not worthy of the Christian life, that you are saved by God's grace. And if you can do that, you can be baptized. <laughs> because baptism in itself is not something that you do. It's something that somebody else does for you. Somebody else puts you in the water and brings you up. It's a symbol of this is what has happened for you in Christ Jesus. And I want to say something more to all you Protestants out there who take such enormous pride in talking about the fact that, well, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. Okay, you know, don't let, don't let right theology produce wrong activity. Yes, theologically we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But don't use that as an excuse to never get baptized. Don't be a a fool. Jesus himself was baptized as an adult. And here's the hard fact. Every person who comes to Christ in the book of Acts, every single person who comes to Christ in the book of Acts gets baptized immediately. They don't wait. They don't pray about it. They don't think about it. They don't see if, they're gonna, if it's going to stick. They say, I believe I'm getting baptized. Will you fail God? Yes. Will you mess it up? Yes. Will you sin again? Yes. But that's what baptism is. That old person is no longer who I am. He might rear his ugly head in activity every, every once in a while, but it's no longer who I am. He no longer defines me. I am raised with Christ. So if you're on the fence about being baptized, my only question to you is, are you, are you saved? Because if you're not saved, then you don't get baptized. But if you're saved, get baptized. I just wanted to put this quote up there. We like to demand others live more Christian than they do, while we forget in order to be a Christian, you are required to confess that you don't ever live as you should. (laughs) You see these political people attacking other political people saying, well, they're not Christian. How dare they claim to be a Christian? By what standard are you judging them? Are you judging them by the biblical standard that says... That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's 1 John 1.8. If we say, we Christians say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We conf- but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How about Romans 7.18? For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh. That's Paul the Apostle. How about James 2.10? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So yeah, maybe that other, people, other person who disagrees with you politically sins in that way, but you sin in this way. And guess what? You're both guilty of everything. James 3.2. For we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. to be a Christian is to confess. I'm not living as I should. That's why the Lord's Prayer demands that we seek forgiveness every time we pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's in the prayer. Because God knows we're never going to get it 100% right. But faith in Christ is not about getting it right. It's about believing that He got it right for you. Let's move on. Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And I love that. He said, okay, nothing's preventing me from being baptized. Stop! (laughs) Stop the chariot. And they both went down into the water. And by the way, notice they both went down into the water. We practice immersion, baptism by immersion, not sprinkle. Immersion. Why? Because it is the normative reality and experience of Christians in Scripture. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. I I just think this is cool. Like God's like, okay, you're done. Leave. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So Philip leaves that great revival in Samaria. He goes down to the desert place. He meets one person. He drops one seed of the gospel into one man's heart and he's done. Which just kind of helps us understand that when you share your faith with someone in Christ, on a rare occasion, that person is going to make a confession of faith. But, on more, but more often than not, all you do is drop the seed, and the Lord works from there. So please don't judge your experience of sharing your faith with someone by their immediate response. They That might just be a touch or a nudge in the right direction, and someone else comes along, and then someone else comes along, and then someone else comes along, and then boom. They cross the line of faith. You're a, you're a link in the chain. So Philip leaves. Look closely here at verse 39. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. A couple of things I want to say about this. First off, he was happy about being a Christian." What a, what, what a, what a shock. He, he was happy that he was saved. I look at some Christians, they're so miserable. I wonder if they're saved. Some church people, they're so miserable. They're angry at everything. Are you saved? Are you happy? <laughs> he went away rejoicing. But there's something more to his rejoicing. And this, I hope you've listened to this long enough, <laughs> this is the coolest part of the story. What do you think he would have done after getting baptized and coming to Christ as he got back into the chariot? Well, what was he doing before? He was reading from Isaiah, wasn't he? He was reading from Isaiah what? Isaiah 53. Well, this is why I think he started rejoicing. Because he probably would have picked up where he left off, wouldn't he have? I would have. He gets up and he turns the page in Isaiah to chapter 54, and look at what it says. This is so beautiful. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And then it goes on and it says, you will spread out to the right, to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will will people the desolate places. You say, well, that's talking about a woman. Okay, he would have kept reading, I know, he's a man. He would have kept reading and he would have gotten to Isaiah 56, two chapters later, where it says in verse 3, look at this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. What did he experience in Jerusalem? Separation. He couldn't go in because he was, he was a eunuch. He, he, he had his male organ cut off. The Lord, quote, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Don't say that, Isaiah says. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is so amazing to me. He would have picked up that scroll of Isaiah. He would have read those lines immediately after having come to faith in Christ Jesus. And he would have learned that he can be a father after all. He can be a spiritual father in the house of faith. And he did become a spiritual father. He is the founder of, church historians say, of the Coptic Christian Church. There are several Coptic churches. He's the founder of one of those. They are still here today, still around today. They consider the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 their spiritual father. They are, a, they are the largest Orthodox church outside of Europe. And they are also the most devout Orthodox church. Orthodox Christians in Europe, about 10% of them go to church. Guess how many Orthodox uh, Ethiopians go to church? 78%. 78% go to church every week. Uh, Orthodox Christians in Europe, about 14% of them tithe. Guess what percentage of Ethiopian Christians tithe? 57% of them tithe. They are not just Christians in name. They are Christians in duty. They actually do it. They actually believe it. There are 36 million Christians who attribute their faith to this man's conversion today. 78% attend church weekly, 58 51% tithe, and guess what they guess what they this is the best part. Guess what they call the Ethiopian Eunuch from Acts chapter 8. They call him the Abraham of Africa. That is cool. The man who could not have children has 36 million of them on the face of this earth. How? because Jesus changed his life, because Philip left Samaria, the revival, to go to the desert place and talk to one person. That is an amazing passage of scripture. It's one of my favorite moments in the book of Acts. Acts chapter four, eight, verse 40, the passage uh, finishes up by saying, Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Samaria. Uh, Caesarea. We'll pick Philip's story up later in the book. The Spirit leads as he may. As he may what? May is quoted in quotes because what? Number one, it may not be to bigger and better. Number two, it may bring you to strangers. When the Spirit leads you, so that person who asked about the Spirit's lead, it may not be to bigger and better. It may bring you to strangers, but that one person may touch unknown numbers of other people. And finally, that the gospel may be served. That's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I'll see you back here next week. Check us out again, as always, on YouTube.com slash TheDeepEndTV or Facebook.com slash TheDeepEndTV. Please like and subscribe. Please follow our page on Facebook. Please always leave a comment and leave a review, hopefully a five-star review, on your on your favorite podcast app. So glad that you were here. I will see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.